I'm Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. You are listening to This is The Way podcast, and the Star Wars Andor Season 1 Episode 10 Reaction and Discussion. One way out. Not No Way Out, that 1987 spy movie with Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. Ladies and gentlemen... This is the way podcast has reached episode 101. I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist breaking that sound clip out again. Alright, time for the usual reminder about our Andor podcasts. Everything taking place in the Star Wars Andor show comes before the movie Rogue One on your Star Wars timeline. Now, if you choose to listen to this podcast but you haven't seen episode 10 yet, spoiler alert, the podcast won't be spoiling you. You know what you're getting into, especially after this reminder. And this episode has some really fantastic, I'd say Emmy award-winning moments. Now, if the need or mood strikes me, I might reference Star Wars shows and movies that have already been released and are probably on Disney Plus right now. If you're not ready for this discussion and recap, come back later. If you are... Let's go! The writer for episode 10 is Bo Willimon, and this is his last of three episodes written in season one. It does feel as if this is the last of a story arc, but I would include episode 7, which wasn't Willimon's. I know they all work together. It's not exactly a writer's room But I know they're all getting direction from Tony Gilroy about what to write. And I think really 7, 8, 9, and 10 all kind of go together. Directing episode 10 is Toby Haynes, his sixth and last episode of season 1. He took the first three of the show with showrunner Tony Gilroy as the writer. And then the most recent three with Willimon. Incidentally, Topic Gilroy is back writing episodes 11 and 12, and Benjamin Karen will direct those for him. Hold on to your butts. Can't help it, I'm expecting great things. Production designer Luke Hull has 12 episodes to fashion planets and sets, and yes, he's got Gilroy and the writers and a great staff, but he is doing a fantastic job. There are no new planets this week, although we did see more of Narkeena 5, and we also got to see deeper into Coruscant than I can ever remember. Composer Nicholas Bertel continues to churn out solid work. His compilation of work from episodes 1 through 4 on the score and soundtrack is available now on streaming services as Volume 1. And then Volume 2 became available on November 4th, containing his work on episodes 5 through 8. Volume 3, episodes 9 through the finale, will come out on Friday, December 2nd, 2022, after... Episode 12 has already been out for about a week. The runtime for Episode 10 shows up as 46 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page for Andor. The action runs a little less than 37 minutes from the start of the Andor title screen at the open until cutting to black from the landscape of Narkeena 5 as Andor and Melshi are on the run. The thumbnail description available on the show's Disney Plus Episodes tab reads... A rare opportunity opens, and the time for Cashin and his fellow inmates to act is now. 
The description on the show's episode page in Disney Plus is more descriptive. That's when you select the episode and then back out of it. It'll read, A rare opportunity opens and the time for Cashin and his fellow inmates to act is now. Meanwhile, to ensure the future of the Rebellion, Mon Mothma brokers a new deal with a very high cost. All right, time to talk cast. You think anybody's listening? The title character is Cashin Andor. Diego Luna plays him here and in Rogue One. Luthan Rail is a new character created for this show. Stellan Skarsgård had last episode off, but comes back with a, well, a just spectacular performance. Senator Mon Mothma first appeared in Return of the Jedi as portrayed by Carolyn Blackiston. I could certainly make an argument that the character now belongs to Genevieve O'Reilly. Her acting in this show will almost certainly lead to more work for her. Not that she wasn't working before, but I would expect that at the very least the Disney company will be using her more often. Those three, Luna, Skarsgård, and O'Reilly, they get top billing, no question. But what has been setting this show apart for me is the supporting cast. But calling them supporting cast almost feels like an insult, even though, you know, that's what they are. For example, ISB supervisor Dedra Miro is played by Denise Gao, and she had almost nothing to do in this particular episode, but there was something about that nonverbal exit from her scene that set my mind off on a tangent. What was she thinking? Was she angry? Was she suspicious? Judging by what happens later in the episode, it felt like my own suspicions might be justified. Really, the whole show seems laser-focused. Now, even if you hated the way the story is going, the show appears to be working like a well-oiled machine from top to toes. Andy Serkis is named next in the end credits, but his performance as Kino Loy... If Can't Swim didn't make a tear well up in your eyes, well, don't tell me. <laughs> I, I don't want to dislike you. I'm going to hold on to some hope that this character finds a way to survive... And at least makes it home. We shall see. No Cyril Karn this episode. Maybe he listened to Mira when she told him to get lost. We did get Sinta Kaz, played by Verata Sethu. No dialogue, just this short scene telling us she's watching Marva. That's always the case for Clay Markey. She's always watching, right? Elizabeth Dulao is... <laughs> She has just made Clea Marquis one of my favorite characters. It's very weird for me to say it, but this show just created two characters that I've never seen before that I would love to see backstory for in live action. I'd love to see how Marquis becomes such a terrifyingly stoic figure and what made her latch on to Luthen. It doesn't appear that she needs him, but he needs her, and they work so well together. Forgetting Maester Kyburn, Major Partigas is now how I'm going to remember Anton Lesser from here on out. He's amazing, and there is this credibility he just gives to Partigas. It's a great character. Same for Ben Miles. The Crown's fifth season just arrived on Netflix, which made me go back and watch the first episode of the series. I found myself thinking about Miles. Oh, look. There's Tacoma. Whereas the first episode he appeared in Andor, I saw Tay and then I thought, oh, 
hey, there's the King's uh, equerry guy from The Crown, Margaret's boyfriend, Peter. He was in far more scenes in The Crown, but his work in Andor has eclipsed it in importance for me. And I love The Crown. But now I think, when I see The Crown, I think, oh, hey, there's Takeoma. Maybe that's not fair because I love Star Wars so much, but hey, that's the facts. Richard Delane is next, and I see from IMDb that I can expect him in this new season of The Crown, when I get to that episode, that is. He's going to play King George V in a flashback, which will take us to World War I. That means he's playing the grandson of Queen Victoria and the son of Edward VII in that show. Here in Andor, he's a much different kind of royalty. He's basically like a Chandrillan gangster, and he wants his family line to go legit. Delane is in the show Pennyworth, about Bruce Wayne's butler Alfred as Patrick Wayne. He was in The Last Kingdom as Ludeca in Season 4, and appeared in Call the Midwife, The Outlander, Poldark, and Peaky Blinders. Duncan Powell is the last name listed before the Order of Appearance cast starts showing up in the end credits there. He's Ruscott Melshi a future sergeant of the Rebellion Against the Empire. Andor met him in the Narkina 5 prison, and they escaped together. And I love that they got him back from Rogue One to do this show. Melchie, talk to me. Ready, ready, standing by. Next, cast by Order of Appearance, and Olaf got his end last week, but they included the body bag shot in this episode, and Christopher Fairbank gets credited again. I'm reasonably sure that since we do the deep dives on casting that we were the first to mention his turn as the mugger on the rooftop that asks Michael Keaton's Batman not to kill him. And... What are you? But I've just now been seeing other podcasters and YouTubers start to mention that, so it's like, I know they didn't get it from me, but it's really disheartening sometimes to be the one to notice it, and it's like, well, where are they getting it from? Why didn't they do something earlier? And maybe it's just because I care about the cast and those connections. All right, the box and console guards, the prisoners at other tables, the night shift workers, they're all doing great work, and I don't mean to diminish it. But if you're not given a name, and you also don't do anything memorable in the episodes you appear, well, I I, I just feel like I got to skip them. I, I will mention, though, box guard number one, Anton Valenci, he, he's the guy with the cattle prod, and he was in a lot of scenes, probably the first target for the prisoners, and also... He's listed as playing a character called Den in next week's episode, according to IMDb. But that will have to be some sort of alien, right? Could that be the guard's name? And since he only got prodded, I don't think he got shot, did he? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. The ISB investigates the fall of the prison, right? And then they have to question all of the guards, specifically maybe... You know, what did they look like? Who are these people? And he's going to recognize Andor, right? But that connection would be, to me, a bit of a stretch. That, that, that would be really hard for... So I don't know who this character, Den, is that he's playing next week. Listen, the cast lists are really long. And I like that about Tony Gilroy's production. We're, we're only left wondering, in some cases, which actor goes with which role... Instead of, like, The Book of Boba Fett or Obi-Wan Kenobi or even The Mandalorian, you know, why is so-and-so getting a credit? He voiced a droid or did he do the motion capture? I, I know, for instance, 
who Dr. Receive is in this show because we talked about Adrian Rollins a lot last episode. So when we see him in this one, we know we're talking about the guy who played adult James Potter in the Harry Potter movies and he was in Chernobyl. Zinska, the Kino Loy of the Night Shift, was Mensa Bediako. The voice of God was credited as Martin Ware. And I think this is someone who primarily works in casting, but maybe he got the chance here to be the voice of the prison. The actual voice, the the prison voice, the modulated prison voice. Now, even though I think the actor who plays the character, or who he plays the character who's supposed to be that voice, is someone entirely different. I don't think the actor who does that voice is actually the one whose voice we hear over the intercom. I'll explain later. <laughs> Burnock, the collaborator on the plan with Cashin, is Rasak Kukoyi. Uh, rest well, Burnock. You took one for the team. Great job by Rasak. Jembach is Brian Bovell. Taga is Tom Reed. Ham is Clemens Schick. Zoll is Joseph Davies. And he, like Burnock, never makes it off factory floor 5-2-D. Supervisor Legrette is Michael Jen. Supervisor Lonnie Jung of the ISB slash Rebellion, however, was the surprise of the cast for me. Robert Ems plays the Rebel Spy, and I must say I wondered for about a year why StarWarsNews.net would cover his casting over the note in the very same article about who played Melshi. How did Melshi, a character we know from Rogue One, not get the headline in that article, I wondered, because... Well, not only that, the article also had correct castings for Nick Blood and Rajavan Vasan as Kimsey and Felzonis. Though the article conflated Kimsey with Jung, or said the, the source did, calling Kimsey a spy. It's an article dated June 4th of 2021. To me, that kind of casting stuff is interesting, because the article even mentions how the person on Reddit who leaked the casting admitted, oh, I, I made a mistake in Blood's casting as Kimsey. But he didn't. He just had the particulars of the character wrong. I certainly didn't know Ems was a spy from earlier episodes. And if you called that, well, kudos to you. I am very skeptical of anyone being able to call that out. I was hoping that it was going to be Miro that was the spy. But after that character's embrace of the darkness last episode, absolutely not. I also thought maybe Blevins was the spy. I think so, and so does Cassin. That character has been conspicuously absent, and I mistook his ineffectiveness for his job for possible double agent work. No, it's M's as Luthen's inside man, Lonnie. Really standout performance in this episode. M's was, surprise, surprise, in Chernobyl as Leo, but He's also been appearing on BBC television since an appearance in Waking the Dead back in 2008. Incidentally, a ton of the actors on Andor appeared in that long off-the-air crime show now. Ems has been in Warhorse, Kick-Ass 2, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, so he does do work in Hollywood as well. Jacob James Beswick is credited again as attendant Heert. Miro's assistant, but he just appears on screen in the background. So maybe a scene was cut, or maybe the credits are just very liberal. I can't even say if it's a case like once credited, always credited, but maybe we just haven't seen significant work yet, and that's why some of these actors getting credited 
end up with one early in the season and then we don't see why until later. And then you get cases where someone gets credited, they show up, and then they're done. Like a longtime Disney collaborator getting rewarded in this episode with a cameo. Conductor and music director Matt Dunkley was Dr. Momoy, the man with the people walking toward Marva's house on Ferrex that is going to go take a look at her. He didn't just work on Andor as a conductor of the orchestra, but he's been working in music departments since 1996, and the first Disney property I recognized, which means that there may be more that I didn't recognize were Disney properties. That was Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End back in 2007. That's the first one I could see. He worked on Iron Man as an orchestrator, Incredible Hulk as a composer and orchestrator, Million Dollar Arm, WandaVision, Cruella, Ron's Gone Wrong, and those are just the ones I know have Disney involved. It's great to see someone with a long list of behind-the-scenes credits get a chance to be in front of the camera for a chance. Well said, so. Inspiring. Longtime BBC actress Pamela Nomvete plays Jezzy, the woman walking with Momoy or going up to Momoy as he's approaching. He's, she's concerned with Marva's health in that short scene. Korv has been credited for several episodes as Nuf Usalam, and he's seen as the man keeping tabs on Marva for the Empire in the same scene with Cinta and Jezzy and the Doc. Paul McEwen is listed at the end of the credits and he's the guy that tells the huddled guards to be quiet near the end when a prisoner runs into the closed doors but right before his name is someone listed as apostle in quotation marks and for a moment i couldn't figure this out but i think since voice of god is also in quotations that that was supposed to tell us something voice of god listed as martin ware that's the voice of the prison telling everyone get on program But the actor chosen to play the character that's delivering those instructions is James Cooney. But it's not his voice that we hear modulated. He's the apostle to the voice of God, I think. And I think we're supposed to understand that there's some voice modulation happening there. But I don't know why they just didn't use his voice. It does sound ominous and creepy, but the acolyte, as it turns out, would have been a lot more confusing since that's the name of a Sith-centered Star Wars show that just started shooting. I suppose calling him the Apostle is as close to an overseer or actual warden as we're going to get. But he's never actually addressed by name. Not that it matters. Nobody here gives their real name. Let's get to the episode. Press play and you get the Disney Plus snap. A previously on segment, Lucasfilm Star Wars sequence, then the Andor title sequence. Only two more versions of this theme left. After episode 10. Great job by Bertel. It's been one of the lower key enjoyable things about the show for me. You get those nuances for each episode right at the start. It's not necessarily a tone setter. But maybe it does get me in an appropriate mood. I'll tell you one thing. I never skip it. The Andor title sequence leads into Olaf getting zipped into a body bag. And then let out by Dr. Rasiv and Anton Valenci's box guard number one on this levitating gurney. Ula is going home. We stay on them for much of the walk out through the night shift, which is a grim reminder for them this is likely going to be their end. From there, we see Kino and Cashin, a.k.a. Keith, 
discussing what's happening, not just because of Olaf, but Kino's eyes have now been opened by the Doctor. Cashin lays it out for him. They can't afford to let the Empire wise up and increase security. The time to go is now. And yeah, they do have a plan. Kino still fighting that mental battle, though. He's thought things were one way for so long, and now the Doctor just destroyed that illusion. You sound insane. No, listen to me. They don't have enough guards, and they know it. They're afraid. Right now, they're afraid. Afraid? Afraid of what? They just killed a hundred men to keep them quiet. What would you call that? I'd call that power. Power. Power doesn't panic. He's absolutely right, Cashin. Power doesn't panic. That is an all-time great line, too, isn't it? Cashin's the voice of clarity that Kino so desperately needs right now, and it feels to me he's testing out a theory on him. You know... If I can convince this career prisoner, then I can convince them all. 5,000 prisoners are about to be put in the same position that those 100 men were in, knowing their fates, but being in a very disadvantaged position. 100 men were fried. 5,000 prisoners now, are they going to fry them all? You know, these floors are the great equalizer here. If the guards catch on, the prisoners are getting restless. They can spark them up and burn them down. You know, they just did it. Whatever the Empire is making here is dependent on the slave labor. Their costs are low. What happens when they find out they need better security? The Empire has always been working on fear as long as we've been seeing it. But Cashin was observant. He saw, in this case, it's a facade. 5,000 men are about to find out they're never living here alive. Don't you think that worries them upstairs? Whatever we're making here is clearly something they need. They can't afford to be surprised again. You know, when I was making notes for this podcast episode, I found myself so often just wanting to play entire scenes. Uh, The dialogue to me is so efficient and crisp. Maybe instead it's that there are so many great lines of dialogue that I don't want to skip over them. Cash and Let's Kino know they have a plan already. It's got to be tomorrow. Olaf's death is almost like the catalyst. You don't have time to be stupid. Come on! Plan works around a new man coming down. They'll replace Olaf tomorrow. That might not happen again until it's too late. I'd rather die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want. Okay, so the very next scene is Cashin thinking he's failed to convince Kino. On the walk to their cells, they're being asked by the other men, what's what's going on? What's what's happened? Cashin urges Kino, tell them. Tell the men what they heard from the doctor. But Kino remains silent, so Cashin has to start breaking the news. Coming from him, though, just doesn't have the right effect. Even hearing that the doctor told them is not enough. It has to come from Kino. The doctor told us what happened down on two. It's true, isn't it? They fried the whole bridge. It's worse than that. It's why. He said they'd made a mistake and sent back a man who'd just been released. They fried two shifts. To keep it quiet. You heard him say this. I don't even know that. I don't believe it. He's only a doctor. They would never tell him. No one is getting out. The control room scene later will echo that. It's It's got to be you, Kino. I mean, this is a guy who never suffers the punishment that his men do. He is rewarded far more than they are simply by managing the floor. These men could look at him as part of the problem with the Empire. Instead... Kino actually cares for his men, and they believe him. So when he tells them, 
hey, the rumors are true. They believe him. It's true. The rumors are true. They're not letting us go. Ever. We're going to die here or in the next place. So let's get our heads back in our cells and start figuring this out. His skepticism at so many points gave him the credibility for this moment. He's not a sympathizer, and he is also not a hothead. When he says, we're going to die here or somewhere else, they believe it. I still don't understand how the guards made that huge mistake of putting somebody in the wrong... It certainly does feel like the empire that I grew up hating, a, a mistake that they would make. This prison is so far off the ISB's radar, it's going to be another huge moment. And I wonder what will happen when another incident happens and they haven't been able to prevent it. They found it. They're towing it in, sir. Pilot dead, ship adrift, port of origin unknown. But Miro's plan to foul Krieger's ship seems to be paying off in the moment. I thought we might see visual confirmation that when they said Kafreen last episode, that it is the same ring of Kafreen we saw in Rogue One. But we just have to assume that that is where the ship is being towed. They froze the pilot, I guess, to simulate a malfunction coming out of hyperspace. They don't know if Krieger knows or is suspicious. And Supervisor Lonnie Jung chimes in with a genius suggestion. They should do exactly what they'd normally do, which is be suspicious and investigate this plane. At this point, there's just no way anyone could think what will happen later is telegraphed here. We, You can't possibly think that he is the contact. Even Miro storming off seemed more to me like, hey, this guy Jung is getting ready to take credit somehow, and that's why she's mad. The look Jung gives Partagaz said to me, oh, my plan to take some credit is working. Not, I'm the spy. What? You? Anyway, the next morning, Kino has prepared his speech. He's thought it over. There was a time before he knew what he knows, but now there's now. They're done counting shifts. There is only one way out. Play it how you want. But I'm going to assume I'm already dead. And take it from there. There's no sense in warning the night shift. They'll hear about it one way or another soon enough. Let's make it look good. From Narkina 5, we check back in with what's happening on Ferrix. We have no idea how Bix is doing, but Marva, we find out, isn't taking her medication. Fortunately for her, she's got people paying attention to her and a community that cares for each other. So this woman, Jezzy, is bringing a doctor, Dr. Momoy, to Marva's place. We see Cinta has stayed true to her word. Keep an eye on the place. Everyone is too late, though, right? Cashin came and went, and he couldn't come back if he wanted to right now. Cinta isn't the only one watching, though. Korv from Miro's ISB team, he's watching too. He does not have any idea about Cinta, though, and he's not so observant as to know that the people he's watching are also being watched by someone else. Then from Ferex, we check in on Mon Mothma's banking situation on Coruscant. Davo Skulden has come to visit her apartment. He visited the Chandrillan senator 30 years ago. I Presumably it was under the control of someone else at that point. He visited this property 
30 years ago as well. Not much has changed. In decor and probably also in decorum. It's state property. The rules are strict on decor. Our choices for change are limited. It's a bit old, isn't it? I like the new. The Chandrelin culture is getting flushed out so well here. It's not just a metaphor for Mom Mothma's life. It is her life. The ways, the customs, the traditions. You know, she both embodies and embraces them, but also loathes them. There's this line from Davo about boundaries being liberating. And that's a paradox that seems to apply only when both parties agree to ignore the boundaries. You know, if a marriage of convenience and they're both sleeping around on each other, I mean, you both kind of have to agree to that, right? I mean, in a lot of cases in history, the, the man was the only one that got to do that. But in the case of her banking situation, Skulden is going to propose to use the letter of the law to circumvent the spirit of it. But all this, it's making me wonder, like, was Mon Mothma's marriage arranged? You know, it may have been. Maybe her parents did so in order for her to become senator. Maybe there was some quid pro quo there. Skulden only wants one thing to help hide Mon Mothma's money for a cause. And he doesn't care about the cause, and he doesn't care about making money. He wants his son to charm Lita. Your father may have an opinion. We'll see if he lets you wear it. He lets me do anything I want. I think it's fantastic that he's not asking for the betrothal or an arrangement. He just wants an introduction. Now, he plays that as if he and his son haven't thought all of that out. You know, that introduction happens, and I guarantee you, Lita is going to want in. She's going to be charmed. He's going to pull out all the stops, and his son will. Perrin may have even had something to do with the suggestion, since Leda is daddy's girl. Davo says he knows Perrin. And, you know, Kalein gets two lines as Davo that are instant quotables. A drop of discomfort may be the price of doing business. Our position sometimes makes decisions for us, don't you find? Senator, neither of us have lived a life that encourages nonconformity. It's as if this scene is like the devil offering the world to Mon Mothma, and all it's going to cost her is her soul. Up until now, Mon Mothma's only sacrifice has really been her own safety, right? Things she could control or influence. But now, she's being put in a spot where she doesn't like the cost. Davo tells her to think about it. It's a lot to think about. I'm not thinking about it. That's the first untrue thing you've said. It's been a pleasure. I've got to be honest, it doesn't feel like in that moment she was even considering it, but maybe she will later. But I don't think she was lying in the moment. Anyway, we stay on Coruscant and Clea makes an entrance, and man, do I have this weird crush on this character. I'm not talking about the actress. I'm talking about the character of Clea Marquis. Whatever it is, she's got it. It's mesmerizing to me. Is it power? Skill? I don't know. She just seems to have her stuff together. Always prepared. Always clear-minded. I kind of would like it if she was Force-sensitive. There, I I know this, this show has been great without the Jedi, but I kind of want her to be a little Force-sensitive. She comes into Luthen's shop and tells him one of the contacts has asked for a meeting. They've used the right signs. Luthen seems disappointed but not worried. 
Clea is suspicious, as she usually is, and we don't know yet who it is, and there's no way anyone could have suspected this. It just isn't. I'm always expecting it to be someone we know, like Bail Organa, Han Solo, Lando Calrissian, or Mandalorian, or Darth Maul, or Kira. I'm just expecting... I don't know. Something outlandish in internet breaking. I guess they said him, so it couldn't have been Kira, but... I don't know. We we didn't have long in the scene to think about, you know, who could it be? It wasn't a very long scene. Or, you know, what is the person going to say? I wasn't even thinking about the possibility that this could be a trap. It's been a year. I'm surprised he waited this long. And if it's a trap? Well, if it's a trap, we've already lost. Oh, man, wouldn't that have been great for it to end up being... uh Admiral Raddus or Admiral Akbar or something. That, that would have been funny. Anyway, what follows is an almost 16-minute sequence on Narkina 5. The plan for the prison break begins to unfold. When you talk about the action instead of actually watching it, there's not much to it. I mean, first we see Cashin going to work again on the pipe in the bathroom. As I mentioned last week, what was all the cutting about? I mean, he had to pry it open in the end. He didn't know how thick the pipe was. Once you start that leak, the guards are going to investigate it. Maybe he was trying to weaken it and not actually break it earlier. You know, so it would be ready to go whatever moment they wanted. But it just doesn't track for me. I think that cutting was really one of the weaker parts of their writing. since, Especially since the writers wrote a different way for Cashin to succeed. The only pass I could give it is maybe... Cashin was planning this with only a few men. Now that he's got the whole floor behind him, the extra tool he has makes the difference. Anyway, we see why he's working on that pipe. And it's water. He's flooding the floor. Initially, I was confused. Because, well, you know, why, you know, it'd be like throwing a hairdryer into a bathtub. Why are you going to flood the floor? I thought maybe he was going to try to get the guards fried. But we see in the struggle... It was to short-circuit the power grid. That was for more than just the floors, though. It also knocked out communication, I think, which could have brought more guards. And it could have alerted the control room, and the central control room, that is. We get a sense just how surprising this is to the guards. And though Burnock and Zal will meet their ends along with several others, 5-2-D starts going floor-to-floor, unit-to-unit, freeing the rest of the prisoners. It was a great sequence. I mean, the throwing of the stuff, uh, and or finally climbing up, kicking the guard down, and shooting the other guard. I mean, it was thrilling, exciting, and it had a cost to it. But I wonder how many of these prisoners make it out that maybe, for the good of the galaxy, would have been better off staying inside, or maybe they should have been the ones to fall. You know, I mean... As far as I can tell, all of these prisoners are human males, and I and Cashin was in for not doing anything, so maybe that's the same for most of these people. I I didn't have much trouble with the breakout until they got to that central control room. This is a facility-wide emergency announcement. Complete program protocol will commence in 40 seconds. Any deviation or failure to comply will result in unit-wide activation. Start the count. Count engaged. 
How long does it take to track down a water break? The techs are waiting for the floor to secure. Isolate five. Locked in. Five, 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 three, five, six. Burn a firewall around it. Try the whole level. Make the epicenter five, two. Too late. There's nobody there. You shouldn't be here. Turn it off. Excuse me? Turn it off! That could mean so many things. I'll turn it off. I didn't really feel like these guards were innocent in any way, shape, or form. And I get that Cashin and Kino are our heroes. But Cashin just killed two foot soldiers, two guards. How the men in the control room don't get killed, I just don't understand. I'm not saying before they shut everything off, but they're left alive at the end. In fact, they just let them go. They, I don't know how you let them go. I, I don't know how they're at least not tied up to prevent them from warning someone somewhere that this prison break is happening. There is power. There's backup power. Uh, communication is allowed because they went over the, the loudspeaker, so I can't imagine that there's not going to be a way for them to get in touch with somebody from the Empire, and presumably ships occasionally land, right? What's more, do these guards think the Empire is going to let them live after they're done interrogating everyone? They're dead anyways. I would have, if I was them, I would have escaped with the prisoners. Cashin was a central figure, and those guards, if they stay, surely will have his face etched in their memories. Move! On program! Now! All yours. The scene does give us one terrific performance from Andy Serkis. He quotes Cashin in his speech, and I'm not just suggesting that. The closed captioning has quotes around the dialogue. My name is Kino Loy. I'm the day shift manager on level five. I'm speaking to you from the command center on level eight. All the floors are cold. Wherever you are, right now, get up. Stop the work. Get out of your cells. Take charge and start climbing. They don't have enough guards, and they know it. If we wait until they figure that out, it'll be too late. We will never have a better chance than this. And I would rather die trying to take them down than giving them what they want. He tells them a couple times that they need to climb. This is where Tony Gilroy's influence really gets felt, and the echoes, or... The poetry of Star Wars, as George Lucas liked to say, is most evident. Nemec told Cashin to climb. Kino tells the prisoners to climb. K2SO will later tell Cashin and Jin to climb. Climb. Rise up. It's the way to escape. It's the way to salvation. It's the way out of the prison. This is the way. One way out. You need to run, climb, kill! You need to help each other. You see someone who's confused, someone who's lost. You get them moving and you keep them moving until we put this place behind us. There are 5,000 of us. If we can fight half as hard as we've been working, we will be home! In no time, 
The shot of the guards huddled behind a door hiding from the prisoners proves Cashin was right about fear. The overhead shots of prisoners climbing the stairs, climbing out of the hell of the factory floors and the prison itself. And the prison viewed from that heavenly position. This was all cinematic. It was amazing television. And it's capped off by one of the most heartbreaking lines. So simple. So effective. Like the story in six words for sale. Baby shoes, never worn. What's wrong? You can't swim. Just those four words from Willem Hunt. <laughs> you know, what's wrong? Can't swim. Back to Coruscant for our meeting, and we're following Supervisor Lonnie Young through the lower levels of Coruscant, and he's taking an elevator further down into hell, it would seem. We just had that 16-minute block of scenes for the prison break. Now we get one... Seven and a half minutes long. Luthen versus Lonnie. First in the elevator. First of all, congratulations. On what? Your daughter. Healthy, beautiful. You must be pleased. Is that meant to scare me? Well, it's been a year since we've had a chance to catch up. You've become a father. It's not worth mentioning. It's not fair. Lonnie is spilling all the beans on what's going on in the ISB. He's being truthful, even as Luthen is lying. You know, I, I wasn't part of Aldani. We passed on it. We, we don't, you know, build on luck. This is so much more believable to me than him admitting, yeah, we did that. We were involved. It's in character. It jives completely with what he tells Lonnie later. Tell me why we're really here today, Lonnie. I can't do this anymore. I'm a father now. I had no idea how it would feel. We took a vow. What were you planning to tell the ISP? My health. My wife's family has an import business. Even as you say the words, you know it's impossible. Lonnie wants out, see? He rose through the ISB over six years. Now he's a dad and as a father of two girls myself, I have to tell you, that struck a chord with me as a parent. Maybe that's just one of those things you just get as a parent. But Lonnie, before he was just risking himself. Now he's risking his family life and he is not comfortable. You love your daughter. Krieger's men will be dying to make sure she has a father. You're trapped, Lonnie. There's no pleasure in saying it. But you're going nowhere. My sacrifice means nothing to you, does it? To Lonnie, it seems like his is the gigantic sacrifice. Luthen has to break it to him. He's sacrificing 50 men and a mission against the Empire to keep Lonnie in this place. That's not his only sacrifice, though. He's working towards something he assumes he will never see come to pass. What's worse? He sacrificed his life already. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my, my eagerness to fight. They set me on a path from which there's no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I look down, 
There's no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Now the ego that started this fight will never have a, a mirror or an audience or, or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything! I mean, this kind of has to be the Emmy submission. Uh, th this episode wins hand down. The Mon Mothma Davo scene and then Lonnie versus Luthen. I mean, it th these are unbelievable. <laughs> and and poor Lonnie, he is indispensable now. He he's like a prisoner, making something he doesn't know the purpose of for the rebellion instead of the empire, and uh, and his ex his sentence just got extended. You know the guards for his prison don't carry cattle prods or wear boots and fry him with hot floors. Cashin and Kino, they found their way out of Narkina 5. Lonnie can't climb. He can't swim to safety. There is no way out. Just stay with me, Lonnie. I need all the heroes I can get. I wouldn't say it's my favorite episode, but it's also not my least favorite episode by a long shot. I, I was initially disappointed with leaving Cashin in prison so long, but the payoff from this episode was sufficient in my mind and worth the wait. This episode may have been designed as an action episode, and I was looking forward to seeing how they got out. The prison break actually wasn't all that exciting to me, but it's not as if this show has been built on action from the beginning. Yes, the pace is slower than other shows, but I appreciate that because in this case, it's it's because of the quality. Obi-Wan Kenobi was, let's just say, it was a poorly written mess in my opinion. I've already voiced my opinions in past podcast episodes about that. The Mandalorian season one was a terrific introduction, but it never felt like a complete story to me. And I think it was written to have a second season. Season 2 then told a more cohesive story, and it would have been fine if that's where they left it, but we got the tag for that show in the Book of Boba Fett, oddly enough. And to me, those episodes actually ended up enhancing what we saw in that show. You know, the interlude with Grogu and Luke, it was fine. It was that there was only five episodes about what was happening in Mos Esma for the Book of Boba Fett, and if we had more episodes to deal with the connection between what happened with the Tuscan people and... What the Republic and later the Empire ended up doing to so many worlds. I think it would have felt like a more complete show. Here in Andor, there are two episodes left. And where we're at, I'm much more confident we're going to get resolutions to stories we've been watching intertwined for the last ten episodes. I saw part of the message. He w I seem to have found it. Time to check back in on another question from last week's email from Daniel of Star Wars Now This. Last week I addressed his question about K2SO and he had two other points. One about Luthen and then the topic I chose for today's episode. He writes, Do you think the plotline with Cassian's sister is over? I kind of hope so. I feel like Marva's admonishment to move on with his life was good enough, Cap. 
to that particular side plot. It did what it needed to do to move Andor forward, and it would be too gimmicky if she turns out to be some Imperial moth or something. I'm looking for my sister. Okay. Daniel, my personal feelings are much like yours. Not everything in life gets wrapped up so neatly. In this case, we might say, well, the show opened up with that. And since Tony Gilroy wrote the first three episodes, which all ended up having flashbacks in it, we may get continuations of some of that in the last two of the season. We may get a resolution. He wrote episodes 11 and 12. And if there's going to be a resolution, I don't think it will come in season two. I think he's going to wrap it up in the next two. So I also have faith that if he does give us an answer, it's not going to be gimmicky. We keep revisiting Ferex, even if only for a shot or two, like today's where we see Cinta and Korv each watching Marva's place. I think the unwritten rule of writing tells us we're going to see something because we keep visiting, but how that will look, I don't think any of us can be certain. The same can't be said for the plotline about his sister. He hasn't mentioned it. It hasn't been mentioned since episode 7, I think, when Marva tells him to forget about it. I think that was also a meta comment for us to forget about it too. So do I feel like the plotline is over? I don't think it's going to figure in significantly. But I, I think since Tony Gilroy wrote the last two episodes that we may get a brief answer about it. Yeah. Good. Thank you again, Daniel. And next week I'm going to read your question about Luthan Rail. Also next week, you may have just heard me mention about Tony Topic Gilroy returning. The showrunner wrote the penultimate and finale episodes. And returning to direct is Benjamin Karen, who handled the Stephen Schiff Episode 7 script. Please send feedback via email to thisisthewaypodcast at gmail.com. Find This Is The Way Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at thisisthewaypod or on facebook.com slash thisisthewaypod. Our Linktree site has all the links, l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash this is the way pod. Please consider subscribing and please leave me a positive review on whatever podcast distributor you use. Thank you for joining me today for One Way Out, the 10th episode of the first season of Andor. I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is the way. May the force be with you always.